0: One of the missionary uh, children uh, had the stomach flu when we arrived, so uh, that means that uh, about eight of us on the team got the stomach flu, um, which was a, just a great way to suffer, honestly. It was a good, uh, good bonding experience. Um, I'm going to share more next week with you about the trip overall, but I did want to give you a, a couple sneak peeks. Uh, we just arrived Monday. Here was the team that went. This is overlooking uh, the mountains of Baños, as you can see. Uh, the landscape is pretty poor, really—not um, beautiful at all, uh, really ugly. Now, I, I know that I know some of you guys are aware of this, but uh, one of the one of the highlights for me personally, this was my seventh trip to Ecuador, our eleventh as a church uh, overall. But on this trip, I got to take uh, my nine-year-old daughter Avery, uh, who we baptized this past summer, and so I wanted to share a couple of those pics with you. Uh, here's the first picture of me and Avery. This is. Uh, this is the picture we're going to show every one of her future potential boyfriends. Um, <laughs> this is dad and daughter, machete in hand. Um, and she was, you know, she looked so sweet and innocent, but in reality, like, she can throw it down. So one of our tasks was actually cutting down a bunch of overgrowth jungle, uh, which meant unearthing several tarantulas and some other things. Um, but but there, there it is, man, what a beautiful girl. Th- this picture has my heart, though. Um, that's... That's her, this, uh, this girl's name was Brittany, as Avery uh, uh, pronounces appropriately. This girl was like attached to Avery. So anywhere Avery went, uh, this little beautiful village girl was following her. It was an incredible trip in so many ways. Again, clarifying in so many ways. And, and those things we're going to share more next week about. But one of the things that uh, Mary Kim uh, Leffler, who took the pictures on the trip, captured perfectly uh, was the unbelievable landscape look at this this is a real picture that's real like we saw that okay like she took that picture uh, i know it looks like it came out of jurassic park or something but but like that's legit how about this next one look at this like are you serious i mean it's crazy right you got a waterfall down there you got like random and then there's like a random village house in the middle like we literally were seeing that i, I love this next one too just beautiful this is overlooking uh the city of baños in between all of the valleys Uh, I've I've said before, I've been all over the world, my favorite uh, place to go is Ecuador because of its beauty. And it always makes me think uh, about this uh, beautiful text about salvation in Romans 1. Here's what Romans 1 says. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And he's talking about The reality that because of creation, screaming the name of Jesus, that no one is without excuse. Uh, This is the go-to verse when people are asking, what about that tribe who didn't get to hear the gospel? Uh, Creation screams the power of of God. And um, that's all well and good until you see a picture like this. This is from Ghana, uh, the slum village in Accra, Ghana. So I see a picture like this, not beautiful like Ecuador, not lush like Ecuador, not no waterfalls like Ecuador. There's water. My question is, does the same principle apply? Uh, let me say it another way. Um, God's word is either true or not. Uh, God's word either applies to uh, any and all circumstances or not. So the question is, does the same verse in Romans 1 about the grandeur, as it were, of God's creation, screaming out the character of God, does it apply to a situation like this? Next slide. How does God's truth define our perspective or experience? In other words, how do we take the Scripture and let the Scripture then define how we see things? There is another option, which many of us struggle with, and that's we see God's truth through the lens of our circumstances. Let's say it another way. Our circumstances then define God's truth, not God's truth defining how we view our circumstances. Are we together? So next slide. When you look at it this way, when you put the two pictures next to one another, the question is, is God still God? Does God still create Is God still able to redeem? Is God able to use the stuff on the right and the stuff on the left both for his glory somehow in some crazy only God-knowing way? The answer to that from a scriptural standpoint is yes. The problem is it is so insanely difficult to trust that. Especially, next slide, when it comes to this. So the scripture makes clear what the body of Christ is, what the church is. But the problem is, every single one of us in this room have had a different experience. Uh, Some of you, your most hurtful times have come under the confines of the body of Christ. You've never been gossiped about like you have in the church. Uh, You've never felt more misaligned or more defamed or more judged like you have in the church. Um, You heard that the church was a place of love, but this one experience when you were 12 told you otherwise. You see what I'm saying? Uh, The way the scripture defines the church is either true or all of us are in this epic battle to define the church through our lens. And so what we want to do for the next four weeks, straight out of 1 Corinthians 12 is we are going to study the biblical picture of the body of Christ. We're going to take the reality that all of us come in here with different perspectives, different hurts, different pains, including me. We're going to together lay those down and say, God, we've experienced a lot, encountered a lot, been pained a lot, have joyed a lot in the church. God, we we desire to lay those things down so that you can teach us biblically what the church is, how we're to exist within it, and where we find joy there within. So are you guys ready to take that journey? That's the next four weeks. I realize that some of you have a drastic amount then to lay down, including myself. But what if together we just say, God, teach us, straight from your word, God, please teach us the truth, not based on our circumstances, but help us see now, through the lens of your truth, and I'm guaranteeing you, there will be freedom for us all. Are you with me? Okay? So I'm going to pray for that tonight, and literally, we're going we're to go at it. Two verses, that's it tonight. Two verses, okay? We'll probably be here for three hours. Let's go. Let's pray. So Father, I would ask tonight that you will grip us with a truth that at times we have been fearful to hear. I pray tonight, God, that you would give us courage to lay down past experiences or current perspectives so that we could just embrace truth as the way you have defined it and not as the way that this denomination has or that this a sect has or that this a, a people group has. God, give us freedom tonight in your truth because your scripture says that your truth sets us free. We want to embody that and embrace that in your great and holy name and all God's people said amen here we go open your bibles to first Corinthians chapter 12 Jared opened uh, chapter 12 last week with an unbelievable teaching on spiritual gifts heavy difficult topic Uh, got to listen uh, even earlier today and thought uh, he just did a tremendous job appreciate his uh, shepherding and leadership so let's start here in verse 12 only verse 12 and 13 that's it Okay, you'll see that the subtitle in the ESV is one body with many members. we got a lot to work through. Verse 12, here we go. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are uh, are one body, he says, does Paul to the church in Corinth, so it is with Christ. A lot, a lot in verse twelve. But let's start with this question: Why does Paul use the body as an analogy to the church? Which is a great question because, it's like, it's kind of weird, right? Because we all have different body types. Okay, uh, like if, if we like started going by the characteristic traits that culture describes us, we're like, why would Paul use? Uh, you know, why would call? Why would Paul use like athletic? Right, because. That's maybe some of your body type as, a, as like an analogy to the church. That seems weird. Why would, why would Paul use a, a skinnier, not so much skinnier? Like, like Why has he used the body of all things that teaches about the church? It seems like maybe there would be a better analogy. But the truth is, this isn't the only spot. Check out these three passages. Other places that Paul describes this exact same thing. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Uh, So Colossians 1, as we studied in our journey through Colossians, that that Jesus is the head of this this church, this body of His. Uh, Secondarily, we see this in Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So somehow we're individuals, but we're also like a part of this greater whole. Okay, a third place in the scripture, there's a couple more in Ephesians 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So for those of you that were like, well, I guess 1 Corinthians 12 was random in describing the church as the body. We just saw three more examples. So it's clear that Paul is like really, really integrated with this image of the body of Christ being the church. I've joked about it before. I grew up like, you know, the, the building's not the church or however the kids thing went, right? But the people in it, you guys remember that little thing? Like, it's not the steeple, it's the people. I just made that up, but it still rhymes in a beautiful way, right? Like, so, so we say that the people are the church. That's why we even, with our kids, describe this place as the church building. We don't say we're going to church, We say things like we're going to be with the church in the church building. This is brick and mortar. It will all crumble and fail, okay? Uh, But the word of the Lord Christ never does. We, We have these things integrated in our language to teach it, but all of it is scriptural because the body is described as the people that are connected to Christ as its head. Next slide. So we can say this again. Why does Paul use the body as an analogy to the church? Let's answer it this way, number one. The body has many unique parts and systems. I, I did horrible in biology. Anybody else? Okay. I don't even know if biology is where you study anatomy, but I did horrible at it regardless. Okay? Like, especially when, you got, when we got to like the, the, the period where you're talking about like recessive genes and whether a kid's going to have brown eyes or something. Did anyone else hate that? I like could never ever get that. I was like, I don't know, like their eyes are just, getting, like the Lord provides the color. Like, let's not worry about it, you know? Why are we so interested? But one thing can be certain is that we're all here in some kind of body. Amen? Okay? We're, we all have very different bodies. Amen? Right? Uh, and so what that does right away is it puts us all kind of on the same playing field and that we can understand that our body has a lot of unique pieces to it okay there, there's a lot of systems happening uh next slide uh, certainly the the game of operation taught us this right right like this is the first time i remember being being weirded out for seeing a naked person i don't know if like operation was the first time i saw a naked person you know what i mean i was just like this is weird i don't know if i should be doing this all right so so, you've got the Adam's apple, you've got the funny bone, you've got the wishbone, the broken heart classic. You've got the butterflies in the stomach, you've got the spare ribs, okay? That, that, by the way, is not a body part, uh, as it were spare ribs. Uh, the, the body, though, next slide, it's built up of all these different systems and pieces. Uh, next slide, if you can, there, bro. All these different uh, organisms that work together, cells. Uh, that work together. Next slide. Uh, we see this in the, in the picture of all of our systems. I, I love just the toilet uh, to show the, the, how do you pronounce it? The excretory system? Is that how you say it? Okay. The doo-doo system, as it were. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> he, I don't know why the toilet's so funny, but I guess it is. Um, he uses the body because we we have a lot of Unique systems. The body itself, now representing itself as the church, is unbelievably unique. Every single person that is a follower of Christ is then connected to the body. And then every single person designed creatively by a creator as incredibly unique. So that's the first reason that he uses this image of the body uh, to describe the church. Next slide. The second reason is this, the head of the body, all of our bodies, drives functionality of the parts. So we have all of these unique parts and systems, and ultimately, though, all of them work together, um, sometimes better than others, the head is what drives functionality. So in all of the scripture that we saw earlier, Christ is described as the head of the body, the head of the church. All of those in Christ then as the body parts or members. And that's why, next slide, we we say this, okay? We are a Christ-centered church. I want to propose to you tonight that if you're a Christian church, there's no other way. There's no other option. Because Christ is the head of the church. Like, no matter my circumstances, no matter what junk theology I've been taught, it doesn't change the truth that Jesus is the head of the church. Anybody can say anything they want about what drives the church or about how the church funnels through some sort of a list of rules. But the truth of the scripture is Christ is the head. And so when we say we're a Christ-centered church, That means that everything here comes back to Jesus. Everything. Your porn problem is a Jesus answer. Your marital issues is a Jesus answer. All of the lurings that you have to self-help ultimately, ultimately, can be completely freed in the person of Christ. That's what we believe here because it's true. Not because we've sought out some weird uh, mystical idea about who God is. But because that's what the scripture says over and over and over, Christ is the head of the church and the head drives the functionality of all of the other members. So I think then that Paul rightly uses the body as an analogy because we are driven by Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, the promise of his return, his gift of the Holy Spirit, we are driven by it, my friends. It's beautiful. But what we have done is we have tried to, um, for lack of a better term, cut the head off. Uh, We've tried at times in our own devices and imageries and actions. We've tried to decapitate Christ, which sounds really, really weird to say it that way, but it's unbelievably true. Let's look at just a few ways how we've done this. Next slide. Ways the church has tried to detach itself from the head. On number one, listen, by trying to survive on systems, programs, and structure. I prayed earlier tonight, Holy Spirit, lead us as you would have us go. Help us not be attached to a certain, like, list of ways that we're going to do it. Uh, The American church is gripped by this corporateness to it. That the way to grow anything by doing X, Y, Z believing that, that somehow they have anything to do with the growth. And so if you just do this, if you just have this kind of kid's deal, if you just sing songs like this, if you just preach like this, if you, if you have enough store, whatever, then the church will thrive. And in doing so, literally building all of the church, not on Christ, but on people. People. On ideas, on human-made systems. Listen, on programs. One of the things you, uh, some of you get frustrated with when you come here, you're like, okay, so, uh, so, like, where's the list of programs here, right? And I'm, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, like, where's the, where's like the this for that, and where's your single mom's thing over here, and where's, like, where's all the programs? And and then you get a little frustrated. I'm like, well, here I got one for you, right up in here. Okay, I got. So you, you mean right when Jesus said, go and make disciples, that's what you're talking about, right? No, 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 I was meaning like mops, you know, nothing against mops. I don't even know what it is really, okay? I know it's something to do with mothers, okay, right? Mops in and of itself is a good thing, but the church isn't built on mops. The church isn't built on student ministry. It's not built on great staff people or a ridiculous band. The church is built on Christ. And so anytime we as the body of Christ try to decapitate Christ from the very thing that the whole thing is built on, do you understand how ludicrous that is? We can try, but it doesn't negate the truth. Number two is this, maybe even more heavy, is we believe that victory happens apart from grace. All of a sudden we... We show the thing, the video, the, you know, the, the publication that celebrates us as a church. Look at all the work we've done. Look at how awesome we are. Look at, how incur- look at how many homeless people we've served. Instead of this deep-rooted belief that it's only through Christ that we have victory, that it's only through grace that we have anyone here, that it's only through the lens of Christ that the truth is being preached, you're either Christ-centered or not. Listen, we can say that we believe in the doctrine of grace when it comes to forgiveness of sins and then completely negate the doctrine of grace on, on Christ's progress in the church. Everything we're encountering together as the body of Christ is a means of grace, period. But pride, arrogance can start to say, no, no, actually, um, actually we're doing this work. I got to sit with a buddy of mine today, a pastor friend of mine, and asked me again, man, Mark, God's doing great stuff at Matthias. And we certainly see that and recognize that. And the, um, the pride piece, which tries so hard to rear its head, the voices in your head say, no, 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 no Mark. Like, Mark, it's not, it's not God's work. It's, it's because of this and it's because of that. And it's... But I want to submit to you that one of the things behind closed doors that this eldership, that these pastors, that this staff embraces day by day, that none of this has anything to do with us. And listen, I'm not just saying it. Please hear me. Behind closed doors, when hard conversations are being had amongst staff people, no one is taking credit for what is happening here. It is God's work. Continue to pray that we will be humbled. Continue to pray that God will break us all of pride. Why? Because we're all part of something special here. God is doing a good work, amen? He is saving lives. People are being baptized. Disciples are being made. Mission is being had. A city is being changed. All of that is true. But he is the catalyst and the implementer of it all. It doesn't and does not hinge on any one of us. You guys believe that? Listen, like Brandon is one of the most talented worship leaders on the face of the planet. Listen, if God all of a sudden called him home, this church isn't built on Brandon. It's not. It certainly seems like it at times, because it kind of looks like Adam Levine, but it's not built. It's not built on him. Okay? Sorry, Brandon. are replaceable, only he's not, and so that's why it's a good thing that he's the head. We just get to, uh, get to be free to be the ambassadors, to be the, the representatives of Christ, of the head. The head drives the body parts. Finally, we try to decapitate it in this way. Oh, hoo, hoo, hoo. the prayerless church the church where prayer is a list of to-dos. The church that is centered around um, a gathering, emotionally stirring people only to send them out, not on mission, not to make disciples, not to plead and pray, but just to go on with their merry, self-ridden lives. That's not the church. But when prayer is just on the list, when we find ourselves in a lack of brokenness, lack of being on our knees, when when prayer is just something that we do publicly, listen, shame on us as a church, as the local body of Christ, if we ever find ourselves seeing prayer as some sideshow anecdote, This body must survive on our knees in prayer. I literally uh, just a second ago asked my son Dawson to pray over me before we got to pray, before I came up here to share God's word, and I'm not sure yet about his uh, his regeneration. And I've certainly not sat him down and just you know said, "All right, here's, here's exactly how you pray, Dawson." But all I know is my son back there just put his hand up on my shoulder and prayed the most powerful prayer I've heard in a long time. And he just, and God, I pray that people would have your joy tonight. And God, I pray that they would love your word tonight. I mean, he was praying this. And I'm like back there a weepy mess, and I say amen, and he like gives me a high five, and I walk away. It was beautiful, right? And I love the fact and I pray that my son grows up Learning. I pray that we grow up in Christ learning that we cannot survive without prayer. But we cut off the head. We say we don't need it at all. We can just survive. God, we're good. We're great. We'll go on our merry way. We'll live how we want to live. No, no, no. The beauty of the body analogy is that the head drives functionality. Next slide. For just as the body is one and has many members, in all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Next slide. Hold on a second. So it is with Christ. I know much of your experience has said that the body isn't One. I know a lot of your journey, your hurts, your pains, the time that that couple you heard gossiped about you, the time within this body that you felt judged. I know that there's been times where you have not encountered oneness. In fact, we could say you you haven't even encountered anything close to oneness. What you've encountered is disjointedness. What you've encountered is disunity. What you've encountered is is something else, some kind of fragmented picture. But again, either this is true or not. Are are you guys understanding me? Are you with me? So it is with Christ. One body, many members, that is the truth. Truth. No matter what we've experienced, no matter how we feel, next slide, no matter at times the kind of uh, dissipating picture we have. Whether we feel like uh, the, the body of Christ is in the slums or in the beauty, the grandeur of God's creation, no matter what our perspective or our lens, we are one in Christ. No one can take that truth away. I have never ever approached a teaching about the body of Christ in this way. It's always been teaching how we can better be one and how we can learn how to, you know, negate our differences. Church, hear me, please. We in Christ are one, that's our reality. Now, when it doesn't feel like it, when it doesn't seem like it, When it feels like we're being pulled apart, that's the battle that we're in. Let me say it this way. Um, David, come here real quick, brother. Come here real quick. This will be awesome. So, and this will slightly be weird too, so work with me, okay? (laughs) But if David represents the body of Christ, okay? All right? And if the head here is Christ, okay? Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture this all of the members of the body of Christ, when they are celebrating their oneness, their reality, who they are, they are finding themselves all going to the source. They're finding themselves all going to the head that is Christ. And so there is tremendous unity that comes in everyone going to the source. But what happens is when we start to take the battle of our flesh, and start to apply it to the body, then imagine this, like the pieces of the body then, it's like they're trying to stretch themselves out of the body of Christ. It doesn't change the reality. Why? Because we're one in Christ. Many members. One body. But what it does is it starts to give the appearance to the world that we are not one even though we are. Do you see the problem? Thanks, bro. I won't ever use you as an example for like the head of Christ anymore. I know it's kind of weird. We should have like put Jesus, you know, and then I don't know anyway, right? (laughs) It's just weird when you use humans for that, you know? Um, But I hope for you all of a sudden, you're coming to this understanding of what it is that we have. The question uh, is why do we have it? Next slide, look at this. Here's why we have it. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Now, if you just took that verse and you, like, started talking to a non-believer about that, they would be supremely weirded out, you know? Hold on a second. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. What? Are you people, like, what kind of Kool-Aid? Are you guys drinking? What what is that? Right? Like, if this was your message on the street corner, so, yeah, uh, in Christ, we're all baptized into one body. Um, And that's just kind of the way it works here um, in Christ. And you just left it as that. People would be really, really confused. Like, how how does that work? Jews are Greeks. Slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now they're really weirded out. What do you mean? Like, we're baptized into one spirit. We're going to drink of one spirit? How does that bring oneness? It brings one us in this way. Next slide, Romans chapter eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, in Christ, look at this, are not in the flesh, but in the what? Come on, in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, what? Come on, does not belong to Him. So the spirit of Christ then is the common denominator for the body of Christ. Said in another place in scripture, he seals us with the spirit. Let's say it this way, at the moment of conversion, we are baptized not into water per se, but into the spirit of God because Christ gives us as a gift his spirit. The Greek word there is baptizo. We're baptized with the Spirit at the moment of conversion. God gives it to us, gifts it to us. And so then that means the unifying cartilage, ligaments, pieces to the body, the thing that's driving the body with Christ as the head forward is the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, why does all of this matter at all for us right now? I'd like to share with you a very specific journey that God's had me on. Um, The very first time that I ever felt compassion The very first time I remember feeling heartache was at a nursing home. Uh, My mom was a a youth director. Dad worked uh, as well with the the student ministry. And one of their missions is they would go around to um, nursing homes and love on the people there and bring them flowers. And You guys remember right, they would sing them songs. Have you guys ever done that ministry? It's great because it doesn't matter how you sound. You know what I'm saying? Like I just remember everyone's off key and the folks there are just loving it. You know? You could sing whatever. You could be singing the Barney theme song and everyone just having it. It's awesome. Right? Um, Apparently you guys haven't done that. We need to add that here to a list of good programs. Anyway. um, (laughs) The very first time I remember feeling compassion was being at a nursing home. And there would be rooms that you would walk into, and they looked different than every other room. Because when you walked into some rooms, there were a lot of pictures on the wall, and there were recent cards that had been written, and uh, there were some poems that were stapled to a cork board. And then you would walk into other rooms. And the very first time I remember feeling compassion was when I was watching people die alone. No family, no visitors. Nurses every once in a while to come in. But they're literally sitting there in their bed, breathing with great difficulty, with no one holding their hand, with no one praying in their ear, With no one reading scripture, they're literally just dying there by themselves. That was little Mark. I shared even a couple weeks ago that my grandmother had just passed away last summer. So when little Mark all of a sudden became big Mark, um, I was back in the nursing home. My grandmother struggled with dementia, was dying of it. And all of a sudden I had this weird, weird moment Because I'm like, in my grandmother's room, there's all of the family always around. She's got cards everywhere. She's got pictures, I mean, for years and years and years. Grandkids upon grandkids upon grandkids that are just all over the walls. And then you would walk in other rooms. And it's crazy. I can't even explain it to you. But there were rooms where I would walk into, and I I remember feeling the same thing that I felt as a six and seven-year-old boy like walking in, seeing these lifeless bodies with no one to care for them. With no one to walk with them, with no one to read scripture over them, with no one to sing to them. They were literally dying alone. I wanna contend to you that I came to this place where I believed and I believe it still today that that dying alone has to be the most horrific way to die or to live. Richard Pryor, uh, the late Richard Pryor says this, think about dying. I've come to realize that we all die alone in one way or another. And I want to tell to you that I I couldn't disagree more. The compassion that I felt watching people die alone is not something I will ever experience in Christ. See, God's had me on this long journey of learning what it means to die to our flesh, of learning what this passage means in the Gospel of Luke when uh, Luke uh, uh, records this next slide, when all of a sudden Jesus puts in a plane, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Like, I've been on this massive journey. Uh, Those of you guys who have been here, you know that. The joy to die to self, the joy to die. But what I've realized is this. I and you in Christ will not die alone we do not die alone the beauty of the body of christ is that somehow we get to live this life dying every day to our flesh together we get the joy of watching the selfishness be purged from one another in the body we get the joy of watching these idols that we have succumbed to for years and years, and then all of a sudden, because of the move of the Spirit, we get to watch one another. We get to see those idols be killed for the cause of Christ. We get to hold one another's hand and lock arms as the body of Christ as we daily die. And that, my friends, is the body of Christ. We get confused with programs and systems and religiosity and phrases but we will never die alone. We daily die together. I wonder, um, as the disciples started to literally die, executed, beheaded, disemboweled, crucified upside down, I have to believe that as some of them were dying, literally in the act, that part of the beauty of that encounter of being killed was knowing that there were brothers that had gone before them, was knowing that they wouldn't be the last martyr. There was and had to be something so beautiful about knowing that they got the privilege of physically dying like some of their brothers and sisters for Christ. So some of you come in here with a lot of pain and hurt. You've only seen the body of Christ through the lens of your experience. And I'm asking tonight, what if what if you didn't just learn a new way to live? What if tonight you repented of that? Even though a lot of things have tried to confuse you or build chaos or distract you, What if tonight you just said, God, I know that you have a beautiful design for your bride. And in the coming weeks, I know I'm gonna learn more about that. But God, tonight, would you help me see the oneness that I have with my brothers and sisters through the spirit of God that I get the joy of not only dying with them, but watching the flesh be killed in them, watching them be guided by the spirit. That is the beauty of community. Listen, some of you are so uh, allured here to a a gathering of worship, but listen, this isn't community. It's one small facet of being together as the body. But one of the things that we long for is, is for people to literally walk through life together. Why? So that they get the joy of dying together. And in all of the attack and in all the moments where you're like, I, I, can't, I can't purge this one idol of my life, people grab your hands and they pray over you. And they yell in your ear and whisper other t- Listen, you do not have to walk through this alone. That's the beauty of community and hear lot families and Discipleship relationships and people that are locked arms, that, listen, is the body of Christ. That is not preserving it, that is losing it. And so tonight we're going to come to the table a little bit differently. We're going to come to the table by pulling off a piece of the bread as we remember the broken body of Christ, as we celebrate his sacrifice. And once you grab that piece of bread tonight, we're going to come to one cup together. As we remember the shed blood of Christ, as we share in the joy of dying together, that's what God has done in calling us as a local body of Christ here to do, and it's our joy to do it. Listen, lastly, I want to make sure you understand this. God's done a great work, but my friends, I really, really believe that we have yet to see, yet to see the plans that he has for us as a church. So before we come to the table together, I'm going to give us a few minutes right now to pray. We're going to pray for oneness. We're going to pray that dissension would be killed we're going to pray that we find unity through the Holy Spirit in the person of Christ. We're going to pray that we would lay down our lens of perspective and instead embrace the truth right now. Whatever that means for you. Maybe it's grabbing the hand of your spouse. You guys know the story and the situation you've been through. Uh, maybe it's, it's you with a friend. Maybe just you crying out on your own. Let's just fill this room right now with prayer. As we ask God to use us as a local body of Christ for his glory. Come on, pray out in your own way right now. Let's pray to him, come on. God, we thank you for your work globally. We thank you for the work that you've done nationally here. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our city. And we're thankful, God, for the work that you're doing in this local body, Matthias's lot. We're grateful for it. So, God, I I pray that the things that I'm going to say right now doesn't negate my gratitude because we're grateful as a body. But, Father, we're praying that you would right now in this very second kill our pride. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be brand loyal, that we would find ourselves loyal to you and you alone. I pray, God, that if there's been anything that has built up divisiveness, cliques, groups of friends, even lot of family struggles or lack of accountability or calling people uh, to task, God, I pray that all of it would be broken down. I pray, God, that we could embrace your truth I pray, God, that uh, for those that are fearful of community and really being known that tonight you would break that, God, that you would give them a longing for the joy of dying with those who are centered around you. So here we are as your church and your son saying we're grateful for the ways you've used us Father, we're praying that you would keep doing so. Save lives. Make disciples. And as we come to your table tonight, I pray that we would have joy in dying to our flesh together. Yes, God. Respond when you're ready, church.